0: Thanks, Mr. Wadzinski, and my thanks also to the members of the uh, Instruction Committee for honoring me with this invitation to address the community of Thomas Aquinas College. My contention this evening <clears throat> is that possessing a keen awareness of anachronism is the most important constitutive element of the modern Western historical outlook. For this, we have the Italian Renaissance both to thank and to blame. I say thank and blame because, like every profound shift in mentality, the rise of the modern sense of anachronism has enabled us to see some things and disabled us uh, in other ways. (coughs) Broadly speaking, anachronism is a mistake in dating. Hang on, I know what you're thinking. I do not mean, an er what I'm talking about is an error in chronology. I'm not talking about a a blind date that goes regrettably wrong. (coughs) Anachronism means taking an object, an idea, or a word out of its proper time, out of its proper place in chronological order. One example is the mechanical clock that appears in 44 BC in Act II of uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. There were no mechanical clocks in Western Europe before about the 14th century. Again, in Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville raised the prospect of anachronism in his reflection on the contemporary American mores. By mores, he means uh, habits of the heart, habits of the mind, or in other words, what he calls the whole moral and intellectual state of a people. He devoted a chapter to discussing the differences between the sense of honor in aristocratic societies and the sense of honor in democratic societies. He showed how the moral world of the Middle Ages differed from the moral world of his own time de Tocqueville explained that the passionate love of money, which in medieval culture was called cupidity or greed, had in the democratic culture of early 19th century America been renamed a virtuous ambition for success. Courage too had changed its meaning, he said, from warlike valor to risk taking in order to get ahead financially. As he put it, the American calls noble and estimable ambition that which our fathers in the Middle Ages named servile cupidity. Just as he gives the name of blind and barbaric fury to the conquering ardor and warlike humor that threw them into new combats each day. As a result, the the medieval nobleman who found himself somehow trapped in America of 1840 would be as much out of place morally as would the early 19th century American who somehow wound up in medieval France. Cervantes had already explored the comic possibilities of something like the former case in his account of the exploits of Don Quixote written in the early 17th century. Don Quixote lived according to a code of behavior not of his own time, that is, not of the early 17th century, but rather of the courtly chivalric culture of the 12th and 13th centuries. Because his values were out of place in his own time, He found what looked a bit like the helmet of the medieval hero Mambrino, a wash basin, and wore it as his helmet. He found what looked a bit like the giants of medieval romance, windmills, and attacked them. He found chained captives who looked as though they should be rescued by a medieval knight, condemned criminals on the way to penal servitude in the galleys, and he liberated them. Don Quixote is like a character from medieval literature living in a world not his own. He's several centuries out of date. Modern fiction, of course, has plenty of examples in which a modern person somehow finds himself in a much earlier historical period. Mark Twain developed this idea in his novel of 1889, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. In which the 19th century protagonist, finding himself in the 6th century Britain of King Arthur, eventually triumphs over his adversaries by manufacturing revolvers, landmines, and bicycles which the knights ride. <laughs> it is important to add at this point that anachronism may be deliberate or inadvertent, intentional or unintentional. The instance I have mentioned so far are deliberate cases of anachronism. Though we see right away that what makes anachronism funny in some cases is the disjunction between, on the one hand, a character such as Don Quixote, who is unaware that he is in some serious way out of chronological order, and on the other, the author and readers who are aware of it. Attending to anachronism, <clears throat> whether deliberate or inadvertent, in literature, painting, drama, and film is often delightful even the austere Mr. Agros must have smiled when, at a pivotal moment in the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, (laughs) the priests of King Arthur's entourage produced the holy hand grenade of Antioch. (laughs) But for the historian, anachronism is no laughing matter. For him, inattention to anachronism, or worse, Naively engaging in anachronism is the source of profound professional embarrassment. Father Buckley would regret saying in public that the Jesuit missionaries of the 1800s used GPS devices to navigate in the Northwest Territory, no less than you would regret blurting out at table in the Commons that back in 1972, when he was a freshman at the college, your dad possessed a smartwatch. <clears throat> The subject of anachronism deserves serious attention because our familiar tripartite historical periodization into ancient, medieval, and modern depends on anachronism. According to this three period schema, we say that Socrates, Alcibiades, and Euclid were ancients, Thomas Aquinas, Martin of Denmark, and the author of Gawain and the Green Knight were medieval. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and Sigmund Freud were moderns. The exact dates of these periods uh, vary depending upon who's setting them out and why. But in general, antiquity is is said to end and the Middle Ages begin in the 5th century AD. The Middle Ages are said to end and the modern period begin in the 14th century in Italy, a century later in northern Europe. This is what I mean by our familiar tripartite historical periodization. Let me explain how this periodization depends on anachronism. We must begin with the Italian thinkers and men of letters of the 14th and 15th centuries, for it was they who developed a sense of anachronism more keen than that of their medieval predecessors. But wait, I shouldn't say medieval here, because before the 15th century there was no medieval period, no middle age, no medium ivum between the ancient and modern periods. The idea of the Middle Ages, as well as the closely associated and even more bluntly judgmental idea of the Dark Ages was an invention of the Italian men of letters of the 15th century. That is, it would be anachronistic to imagine that medieval people thought of themselves as being medieval. (laughs) Returning to the 14th and 15th century thinkers who developed the idea of the Middle Ages, they are usually called the Italian humanists. Now, In case you may associate the name humanism with something negative or antithetical to our Catholic faith, let me offer the following clarification. The Renaissance humanists had nothing in common with modern educational theorists who divide the higher curriculum into the sciences on one side and the humanities on the other. In the modern period, the designation humanism sometimes carries along with it the notion of purely secular and not oriented toward the divine. The Renaissance humanists, by contrast, were without exception Christian and very often quite serious about their faith. They were scholars, poets, and men of letters whose main interest was the culture, the language, the literature, history, sculpture, and architecture of the ancient pagan world, especially that of Rome. It might be worth naming several of them just to provide a clearer sense of the kind of people they were. Leonardo Bruni, who died in 1444, served as a secretary to four popes, but more significantly, twice held the highest office in Florence, that of Chancellor. He wrote biographies of Cicero and Dante, made Latin translations of Aristotle's politics and Nicomachean ethics, and most important, wrote a history of the Florentine people in 12 books in Latin. Poggio Bracciolini who died in 1459, spent his working life as a secretary in the papal court, serving seven popes over the course of 50 years and eventually attaining the rank of personal assistant, um, apostolic secretary to Pope Martin V. In his spare time, Paggio searched the libraries of medieval abbeys in Switzerland, southern Germany and France for unknown ancient works, a quest that was remarkably successful for it was he who found many of Cicero's political orations and, more famously, the the only known manuscript of De rerum natura of Lucretius. Another humanist, Lorenzo Valla, who died in 1457, was a priest and teacher of rhetoric who was so difficult to get along with that he gave up his teaching post to become a sort of itinerant lecturer and scholar for hire. He championed the revival of classical Ciceronian Latin and wrote a handbook on Latin eloquence in which he argued that the same standards of literary criticism that apply to the Greek and Roman classics should also be used to study sacred scripture. This led to a famous conflict with Paggio who maintained that human letters and theology are such separate fields that it would be insanity to employ the criticism proper to the former in the latter. I need not multiply examples to show that the Italian humanists were a diverse and at times quarrelsome lot. But what they had in common was an intimate affection for the ancient Roman and Greek authors. They felt at home among the ancients. In the writings of Cicero, Livy, Virgil, and the rest, the humanists recognized men intent upon the same kinds of affairs and great struggles that engaged them. So marked was their enthusiasm for ancient culture that the very name humanist stems from the curriculum they devised based on the classics for the education of free men for public life in the non-clerical elite of their home cities. The studia humanitatis, as they were called, included Latin grammar, rhetoric, poetry, history, and moral philosophy. The disciplines deemed most likely to produce capable and urbane citizens. They were loyal citizens and often public functionaries of their city-states who recognized that eloquent speech is indispensable for the politician and soldier. This politician-soldier must also be equipped with knowledge of Republican history and his character should be formed with moral examples of the great men of the past. His leisure time should be spent worthily in the appreciation of poetic and artistic beauty an appreciation best gained through deep assimilation of the works of Virgil, Horace, Ovid, and Statius. Returning to my main theme, the new sense of anachronism that the Italian humanists developed was a byproduct of their intense enthusiasm for ancient Roman culture. They viewed ancient Rome in a new way because of the urban, mercantile, and political character of their world. After the deposition of the last Roman Emperor in the West in 476, the towns of central and northern Italy remained the focus of economic and social and cultural activity to a greater extent than was true of Europe north of the Alps. These city-states developed a political conception of citizenship that resembled the old pattern of classical Mediterranean cities rather than the feudal relations of personal allegiance and loyalty that were characteristic of northern Europe at that time. By the 14th century, Italy was a patchwork of free city-states, duchies, and principalities that enjoyed enjoyed a great deal of autonomy, self-government, and in a few cases, republican liberty. In short, because the humanists lived under social, economic, and political circumstances that bore some noticeable similarity to those of the ancient Roman Republic, it is hardly surprising that they turned with enthusiasm to ancient Roman culture. The reverse side of the humanist attraction to ancient culture was a negative judgment of the culture of their own time. The humanists felt both an affinity for the culture of ancient Rome and an aversion from the culture of the more recent past. They wrote in a refined neoclassical Latin that was not practiced in the universities of their day. The main subjects taught in the universities, theology, law, and medicine, seemed remote from the practical needs of public men of action. Furthermore, the humanists noticed what our own sophomore students of the language tutorial have perceived Namely, that the Latin of Cicero and Virgil is rich and eloquent, inventive, and pleasing in ways that the technical, precise, scientific writing of the schoolmen of the 13th century is not. Even the great architecture of their time, with its pointed arches, ornate facades, and tall colored glass windows, the humanists regarded as hopelessly tainted by association with the barbarian invaders of the Roman Empire. When they referred to this architecture as Germanic and Gothic, the humanists expressed their disapproval and alienation from the high culture of their own time. Instead, they preferred the rounded arches and thick walls with small windows of the structures they thought of as Roman, the architecture that survived around them in Italy. The new humanist perspective on history stands out clearly if we attend to the old view that it replaced. By the early 14th century, most Western historians for nearly a thousand years had conceived their topic within a universal sweep that reached from creation to the present and from the present to the end of time. That universal whole was subdivided according to one of two basic schemas, the succession of four world monarchies or the succession of six ages. The first pattern was based on Daniel's prophecy on the statue composed of various metals and on the four beasts. The second appeared most noticeably, but not for the first time in Book 22 of Augustine's City of God. Both views shared a common assumption that the world and its various nations and peoples form a unity. This was a Christianized version of an older Hellenistic notion of the universality and continuity of history. The greatest early Christian historian, Eusebius, had adapted the schema in his ecclesiastical history down to the time of his contemporary, the emperor Constantine. In the late fourth and fifth century, Jerome and then Augustine lent their support to the schemas of four world monarchies and the six ages. In the following centuries, one version or another of this pattern appeared in all the greatest histories and chronicles. The important point here is that in both schemas, the last period begins at nearly the same moment. In the one, the foundation of the Roman Empire under Julius Caesar or Augustus. In the other, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This meant that the mainstream historical periodization featured a sharp division between a long period of darkness and preparation before Christ and the Roman Empire and another period of purification and enlightening truth after the Incarnation. At the boundary between two periods stands the cross. Since the time of Jerome and Augustine, this theology of history made it explicit that the last world empire, that of Rome, must continue until the beginning of the reign of the Antichrist. To preserve this piece of the historical schema, for nearly a thousand years after Augustine, The chroniclers championed the notion of a translatio imperii, or transferal of empire, transferal of the Roman Empire, first from pagan to Christian emperors and then from Roman Christians to Frankish Christians and German Christian emperors. The belief in the continuity of the Roman Empire down to the present was a central tenet in this supernatural teleology. Let me turn to the historical periodization that the humanists developed. Their attention to the political history of the city-states led them to break away from the inherited periodization of their day. As patriotic citizens of towns and cities that had begun to prosper and have an independent political existence and vibrant civic life only after the decline of Rome, The humanist historians were interested in the secular history of particular Italian states, not the unity and universal character of Christendom. Celebrating the success and achievements of this or that city state meant not focusing on the empire. For this reason, it is not surprising that the humanists, starting with Francesco Petrarch in the 14th century, rejected the notion of translatio imperii, and began their histories with the decline and fall of Rome. Their accounts of when and how Rome declined varied. The early 15th century Republican, Leonardo Bruni, maintained that Rome's decline began with the end of the Republic and the emergence of the first emperors. When the state came under the power of a single man, civic virtue and greatness of soul fell out of favor. This weakened Rome so much that after a long series of dissensions and civil wars, Constantine moved the capital to Byzantium and the waves of barbarian invaders finally destroyed Rome. Bruni saw the fall of Rome not as a tragedy, but as a necessary preparation for a middle period during which the city-states emerged and gradually achieved independence. In his history, Flavio Biondo of Forlì agreed with Bruni that a lengthy period separated the fall of Rome from the contemporary vibrant political life of the Italian cities. But unlike Bruni, Flavio dated the fall from the sack of Rome in 410 by the Visigoths. That event initiated a period of continued decline and desolation of Italy by by barbarian invaders that lasted until the mid-eighth century. This interval was a necessary precondition for the rise and eventual success of the city-states. So many, many of these historians wrote basically the same thing. While in their political histories, the humanists developed the notion of a middle age, in their reflections on the history of art, letters, and culture, they developed the notion of Renaissance. The humanists wrote of an age of barbaric degradation between Roman antiquity and their own period of cultural revival. Once again, applying the metaphor of light and darkness in a way quite different from the view of history they had received, the, humanists, uh, the humanist perspective of arts and letters featured a brilliant period in Roman antiquity followed by a dark middle time separating the ancient brilliance from the present restoration of light. In these sketches of cultural history, the dark middle period tends to be longer and more uniformly dark than in their political history, and the revival of light is more recent and sudden than in political affairs. Filippo Villani uh, identified a nine-century gap between the late antique poet Claudian and the medieval Dante, which he attributed to a combination of the decadence of the later Roman emperors and the hostility of the Christian faith to the products of poetic imagination, which it took to be harmfully misleading and vain. Leonardo Bruni claimed that Petrarch had recalled letters to light after a long period of barbarism and decay. Others blamed the force of aesthetic and technical tradition for what they perceived as a long stagnation of the arts of painting, sculpture, and architecture. The 15th century Florentine philosopher Marsilio Ficino went so far as to say of his own time, it is undoubtedly a golden age which has restored to the light the liberal arts that had almost been destroyed, grammar, poetry, eloquence, painting, architecture, sculpture, music. In the next century, in his Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects, Giorgio Vasari, who died in 1574, referred to the revival of the fine arts in the age of Cimabue and Giotto as a Rinascita, or Renaissance, and thereby established for art history the periodization of medieval and Renaissance art. He distinguished a maniera moderna, or modern style, which Vasari thought had lately achieved its perfection in the work of Michelangelo, and contrasted that style with the stiff, crude, and unnatural post-classical styles, the Maniera Greca or Byzantine, and the Maniera Tedesca or Gothic style. Let me next say something about the role that anachronism played in this striking departure in historical periodization. In a general way, it should be clear that having an aversion to one thing and an affinity for another presupposes knowing the difference between those two things. Disliking the taste of chocolate and enjoying the taste of Brussels sprouts would only make sense if I had tasted both and can tell the difference between the two. Similarly, 14th and 15th century humanists could only have experienced alienation from the culture of the recent past and a sense of kinship with the culture of Roman antiquity on the basis of their awareness of a difference between those two cultures. Above all, it was their interest in what we now call philology that led the humanists to a new, more vivid awareness of anachronism. As every sophomore at the college knows, philology is the study of the historical development in the meanings of words and phrases. Those who have read in CS Lewis's delightful studies in words will recall that the meanings of words tend to branch out, to ramify over the centuries in such a way that the unwary reader of today may inadvertently impose the more recent common meaning of a certain word onto an appearance of that word in an earlier text which was written at a time when that word didn't yet have that meaning. In the midst of considering the historical ramifications of words such as nature, sad, wit, and simple, Lewis draws attention to what he calls the dangerous sense of each of them. The dangerous sense is hazardous precisely because it lures the philologically uninformed reader to commit an act of naive anachronism by imposing the contemporary common meaning of a word where it doesn't belong. In relation to my subject this evening, the Renaissance humanists are the philologically well-informed readers and their medieval predecessors are the philologically uninformed readers. One of the earliest and greatest of these philologically well-informed authors was the 14th century Francesco Petrarch, who was born in Arezzo but spent most of his time in southern France and northern Italy. He wrote sonnets and letters in his native Tuscan, but was most revered by contemporaries and later humanists for his Latin poetry and prose, which conformed in diction, syntax, and style to the language of Virgil and Cicero. His love of those ancient models, coupled with a lifetime spent cultivating his own neoclassical style, enabled Petrarch to, to be keenly aware of the difference between the uncouth and decadent Latinity of the recent dark past and the brilliance of the language he worked to revitalize. Over the two centuries following his death in 1374, scholars developed an ever sharper picture of the history of the Latin language and literature. That is, they cultivated the field we now know as philology. This development of philology is the single most important cause of the new sense of anachronism that led to a new historical periodization. Here it may be useful to mention the work of one of the great figures of 20th century art history, Erwin Panofsky, whose ideas have been foundational in fields outside of art history. He noticed that the Renaissance humanists developed a lucid sense of historical distance, that they understood themselves as different from their immediate predecessors, the people we would call medieval, by their sense of an intellectual distance between the present and past. Panofsky held that medieval artists tended to separate historical subject matter from its proper historical form. So, for example, they depicted Eve in the ancient type of Venus or presented the Trojan priest Laocoon with the tonsure of a monk. Even themes from scripture they didn't consider with much historical awareness. High medieval Bible illuminations of Old Testament scenes naively present the figures of ancient Israelite history in the arms, armor, and heraldic garb of contemporary crusaders because high high medieval people had very little sense of the past as qualitatively different from the present. By contrast, 15th and 16th century Italian artists revitalized the ancient forms by matching them with the proper historical subject matter. They became adept at presenting the ancient gods and heroes in the costumes and with the physiognomies and insignia that they possessed in antiquity. Panofsky famously drew an analogy between the Renaissance discovery of three-dimensional perspective in images and the Renaissance historical imagination. He wrote, in the Italian Renaissance, the classical past was looked upon from a fixed unalterable distance quite comparable to the distance between the eye and the object in that most characteristic invention of the same renaissance focused perspective. As in perspective, this distance prohibited direct contact owing to what may be called an ideal projection plane, but permitted a total and objectivized view. Such a distance is absent from the Middle Ages. We should notice that Renaissance artists and writers did engage in anachronism, but on Panofsky's view, which has now become commonly accepted, they did so knowingly, deliberately, and with discernment. In effect, the received view of Renaissance culture comes to us already freighted with a distinction between good, that is deliberate anachronism, and bad, that is naive anachronism. The emulation of authoritative literary and artistic models of the past or imitatio auctorum that Petrarch practiced so successfully was itself an instance of good anachronism. One facet of the goodness of this anachronism is that the imitation Petrarch and others engaged in did not prevent them from developing a style of their own. Imitation of the ancients was instead the means by which they developed a style and expressed their self-awareness. They wished to distance themselves from the immediate past and appropriate for themselves the trappings and spirit of the more chronologically different culture which they admired and with which they identified. Much as one would appropriate a 17th century Spanish ceiling for a late 20th century American college library. Much as T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, uh, repurposed so so much earlier imagery, including the famous line, those are pearls that were his eyes, from Shakespeare's The Tempest. The humanists and the modern historians of art and culture who have followed them, viewed their medieval predecessors as naively anachronistic in their treatment of ancient culture. Before the time of Petrarch, Western Europeans saved, preserved, and quoted the classics, but in the 14th and 15th centuries, they brought the classics back to life. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Uh, what I have described so far is the standard, commonly accepted view of the origin of the tripartite h- historical periodization into ancient, medieval, and modern. Next, I want to say something about the problematic feature of this commonly accepted view, not because I think it's simply mistaken, but because it often happens that gaining a clearer perception of one reality entails obscuring one's view of another. The new awareness of anachronism had an impact on the 15th century outside the realm of art and letters. I'm thinking of the matter of forgery, especially the forgery of legal documents and the role, uh, and, and the role that an enhanced awareness of anachronism played in exposing many forgeries and misattributions, both large and small, that had gone undetected before the 15th century. We may gather something of their number and diversity from the published proceedings of the International Congress held in 1986 under the auspices of the Monumenta Germaniae Historica. The collection titled Forgeries in the Middle Ages stretches to five volumes, not counting the index. Although a few of these forgeries seemed suspicious even by medieval standards, most of them went undetected in the Middle Ages. Awareness that the meanings of words and concepts often change over time and from culture to culture is a central feature of source criticism, a characteristic mode of thought of the modern historian, but not of historians living in the Middle Ages. A famous example is Lorenzo Valla's demonstration in 1440 that the donation of Constantine was an early medieval forgery. This document purported to be a decree of Emperor Constantine, bestowing on the See of St. Peter, temporal authority over the city of Rome and all the western provinces of the empire. The donation had been included among the 9th century pseudo isidorian decretals, itself an assemblage of authentic and fake canons, decretals, and papal letters, and was then used from the 11th century onward in the papacy's struggle with the secular monarchies and empire. Other 15th century authors had questioned the authenticity of the donation before this, but Valla was first to make a sustained demonstration that in many places, the language of the document was anachronistic. That is, certain Latin words, titles, and institutions mentioned in it could not have been written in the fourth century because they either didn't exist then or were not used in that particular sense at that time. Valla cited the late antique historians and even con, uh, consulted the series of imperial coinage to show that Constantine continued to the rule the West even after the time of the alleged donation. Valla's awareness of anachronism also led him to suggest that the treatises and letters which Western authors since the ninth century had attributed to Dionysius the Areopagite who was mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles could not, in fact, have been the work of that individual. In this case, Valla's concerns were not specifically philological, but more generally historical. An author named after the site of the law courts in Athens was more likely to have been a jurist than a philosopher. Again, since no writer in Greek or Latin mentions Dionysius before Pope Gregory the first in the sixth century, Valla doubted whether Paul's Dionysius ever wrote at all. In the 16th century, Desiderius Erasmus took up and expanded Vallas' criticism, claiming that we, what we now recognize is true, namely that the Corpus Areopagiticum could not have been written in the 5th century, in the 1st century. In other words, that the nearly apostolic status that those texts held in the eyes of scholastic theologians in the High Middle Ages was based on a false attribution to Dionysius the Areopagite. Forgery and misattribution of texts did not begin or end in the Middle Ages. Forgers and critics matched wits in the ancient world and in modern times too. But students of the Middle Ages have lavished attention on forgery in their period, in part because forgery is dishonest. And it seems curious that dishonesty should have flourished in a period in which most of the forgers must have been monks or priests. In the past generation, medievalists working on forgery have tended to split into two groups. Some have assigned blame to the forgers and posthumously called to account ecclesiastics who betrayed the Christian ideals, which they professed to uphold. Others have tried to show that the work of the medieval forgers was pious and not reprehensible falsehood, that medieval forgeries were not comparable to their modern counterparts, and that the good intentions of their authors made them not, strictly speaking, wrong. Rather than taking sides either with the apologists or the detractors of the medieval forgers, I intend to propose that recent ideas about anachronism may help clarify what it was about medieval culture that was so hospitable to forgery and misattribution. One way to put it, is that legal documents were members of a larger category of objects that in the Middle Ages simply didn't conform to the standards of good and bad anachronism developed in the 15th century and post-Renaissance modernity. Two contemporary art historians, Christopher Wood and Alexander Nagel, have recently proposed that in the late Middle Ages people thought about artifacts, images, and buildings in a paradoxical way. They seem to have thought it possible that a material sample of the past could somehow be both an especially powerful testimony to a distant world, and at the same time, very likely an ersatz, a phony or a substitute for some earlier, now absent artifact. There were two logically hard to reconcile convictions at work here. On one side, that material evidence is the strongest sort of evidence, on the other side, that it was quite likely that at some point the material object had been replaced. Instead of coming down on one side or the other of this apparent contradiction, people thought doubly or were of two minds about at least some artifacts. Not all objects were regarded in this ambivalent way. Some objects were utterly incapable of substitution and others were entirely capable of substitution. And in either case, this ambivalent thinking could not apply to them. Saints' relics, for example, could not be treated in this double way. Chaucer's partners, a partner, whose holy relics were piggies' bones, was as clearly transgressing the truth as the shady 9th century Roman deacon, called Deus Donna, who scrounged up whatever human remains he could and sold them to pious Frankish customers as holy relics. It was illicit to substitute anything for saints' relics. That's one extreme. At the other extreme, medieval people also did not view documentary, that is non-legal texts, verbal texts in a two-minded way. Clearly, a verbal text such as a poem or a story could be copied and substituted for the prototype as many times as one liked without affecting the meaning or status of that poem or story. Between these two extremes of, completely of the completely non-substitutable relic and the completely substitutable text of the poem or story, there was a range of artifacts which were subject to what Nagelin would describe as think Images, sculptures and buildings, but also documents such as deeds, charters, licenses, grants, and exemptions moved between the two poles of the non-substitutable and the substitutable. The forgery of many documents during the Middle Ages could be seen as the reproduction of original claims of right, ownership, or exemption that had been lost or misplaced. Others were forged as a means of providing documentation of a claim that was known to be authentic, but had never been recorded in writing. Some of them were probably just plain dishonest. But the point is that in a culture in which legal documents were neither totally irreplaceable nor totally replaceable, there was a wide scope for forgery. (laughs) The medieval double thinking depended on a set of assumptions about artifact production that post-Renaissance moderns do not share. Above all, modern people emphasize the moment of production of a particular work, what Nagel and Wood term its performative aspect. When Renaissance humanists emphasized the style of this or that individual artist or poet, they showed that each painting, sculpture, building, or poem is an index of the particular, local, even personal circumstances of its production. Such a view of the artifact as a product of its particular historical context emphasizes the synchronic aspect of that object. In other words, it highlights the very circumstances of that artifact at the moment of its making. This modern emphasis upon the performative element of artifact production is closely associated with the modern concern to have original works of art. An aura, or in other words, a a numinous, um, a mysterious or awe-inspiring quality attaches not to a print, photograph, or other reproduction of a picture, but to the original picture made by any well-known artist, say Monica Morell. The post-Renaissance modern West is, as Wood puts it, peculiar in its insistence on the tight causal link between the physical artifact and the life world, the constellation of circumstances that generated it. Such a perspective attends much less or not at all to the diachronic aspect of the artifact. In other words, it fails to take into account the longer history of that artifact, the continuity or discontinuity of its meaning in subsequent periods, and its possible repurposing in different contexts. So captivated have we as moderns been by the achievements of the Italian Renaissance that we have uncritically accepted the humanist assumptions about the work of art or architecture or poetry as an index of the particular historical moment, context, circumstances of that work's production. The work's historicity is for us plotted as a, at a single point in linear time, the moment of its performance by a known artist. In short, preoccupation with the modern work of art in its originality has caused us to lose sight of the premodern image. The premodern alternative to the performative theory of the origins of artifacts is what, as I mentioned, Wood and Nagel term the substitutional theory. Medieval people tended to treat images in a twofold manner. On one side, they were aware that this particular image was perhaps made quite recently. On the other, they invested this particular image with the meaning of the very old prototype of that image. This was not because they were less astute than modern people. It was not a defect from which they suffered. Instead, they operated with a set of background assumptions about how artifacts exist in time that was proper to their culture. One artifact had the power to imply with great force a prior chain of artifacts that eventually led back to a faraway point of origin, a historical person, or a moment of founding. A premise of the impossibility of originality informed the response of the viewer to the artifact or image before him. He did not think the style of the work was an index of the particular circumstances of that work's production. We know the names of so few premodern image makers and craftsmen precisely because their work didn't stand on its own but was rather the latest instantiation of a lost prototype that was itself of divine or heroic origin and the age of which was distant and usually unknowable. The literal conditions and particular historical moment of an artifact's manufacture usually had nothing to do with its use and meaning because that artifact referred to a now lost or very ancient prototype. The image or artifact must be sensibly present to the viewer but its material specificity does not detain the viewer's attention because the aura in this case resides in the ancient prototype. The viewer experiences a numinous, a a, a mysterious or awe-inspiring quality, a mysterious presence not in but through the image or artifact before his eyes. Let me cite just two examples of this. Both of them from the Benedictine monastery of Fulda in Hesse, Germany, which was founded in the 8th century by disciples of the Anglo-Saxon missionary martyr, Saint Boniface. In the early 9th century, near the huge monastery church, one of the abbots, Abbot Eigel, erected a small rotunda church and dedicated it to Saint Michael. What is visible of the St. Michael Church now dates mostly from the 11th century but earlier descriptions of the structure along with archaeological excavations that reveal uh, there reveal that originally the church consisted of a small central room surrounded by an ambulatory, eight columns supported either a dome or an eight sided domical vault over the central room. A ninth century inscription from the main altar explains that the church was patterned on the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and down until 1715 there was a massive conical model of the, of the tomb of our Lord in the center of the main room. Some 75 years ago the eminent historian of architecture Richard Krautheimer pointed out that Fulda is one of dozens of places in Western Europe to have a replica of the fourth century Church of the Anastasis, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, in Jerusalem, which was initiated by the Emperor Constantine and included a rotunda chapel over our Lord's tomb. Fortunately, we know enough about the plan and appearance of that fourth century Church of the Anastasis so that Krautheimer was able to make detailed comparisons between it and the St. Michael Church at Fulda, and between it and the many other medieval replicas of the Church of the Anastasis. The striking result of these comparisons was how minimal the similarity was between the explicitly named prototype and its replicas in material, in plan, in program details, and so forth. As a result, Krautheimer wrote that an indifference towards precise imitation of given architectural shapes prevails throughout these copies of the Holy Sepulchre. He argued that many centrally planned churches of the Western Middle Ages, despite their variations in construction and particularity of appearance, were intended to adhere to a few simple principles of design that were embodied in a few important and prestigious ancient structures, such as the Church of the Anastasis. Medieval people seem to have approached the whole question of copying in a very different way compared to that of modern people. My second example involves Another um, early 9th century abbot of Fulda, this one named Rabbanus Maurus, who commissioned an unusual reliquary to house the remains of saints and martyrs he acquired from Rome. An early 10th century source from Fulda describes this reliquary. He made an ark in the image of the ark of Moses, with rings and handles, every part covered with gold, a propitiation, the cherubim of glory, with a portable candelabrum made of gold. He established the delightful procession of uh, palms and was accustomed to bring out that same ark with its ornaments in great glory. Rabanus was well aware that his reliquary was not physically the Ark of Moses. But as the abbot's writings show, the reliquary connected his monastery not only with the ancient history of the Israelites, but also with the eschatological future. The processional use of the reliquary allowed the monks to enact their presence at the dedication of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem and to anticipate their presence at the heavenly adoration of the lamb. These two cases suggest that the copy had to be some lavish or striking sensible object before the viewer but its evocation and representation of the prototype did not apparently depend upon a strong outward resemblance to the prototype. The medieval view of copying was different from ours because their understanding of objects in time was too. All right, a couple of concluding remarks. My claim is not that a keener sense of anachronism doesn't afford one a better view of history in some sense. It is true, after all, that every artifact was produced by particular hands at a certain time and place. Each artifact is, from one point of view, an index of the singular circumstances of its production. It reflects the who, what, where, when of its making. Attending to old artifacts in this way allowed the Italian humanists to discern the tripartite schema of historical periodization, which we still use and it allowed Lorenzo Valla and others to expose a number of forgeries and false attributions that had gone undetected before their time. I'm also not advocating somehow giving up the keen modern sense of anachronism, for such renunciation would amount to a kind of a willful embracing of ignorance. Besides, it would be impossible to give it up. To be a modern historian, frankly to be a modern person at all, is to be very aware of anachronism as a kind of a global principle. We don't choose this. It comes with the modern cultural territory, just as de Tocqueville saw that equality and democracy were not things we could, if we wished, brush aside or do away with. They are central features of the modern cultural landscape. Like it or not, we are moderns and cannot simply wish that away. What I am saying is that unless we choose to cultivate greater self-awareness of the patterns of our own thought, we are in danger of overlooking a rich range of pre-modern thought and culture which will not fit the categories of good and bad anachronism. Like pretty much every historical advance, the development of the modern keen sense of anachronism in the 15th century was only an advance in one sense. In one important way, people saw more than they had before. But in other ways, they saw a little less. I think we should remember that the keen awareness of anachronism itself is an idea, a way of thinking that emerged at a certain historical moment. It itself is an historical product. The fact that anachronism is at home in our time entails that it was not at home or less at home at some earlier time. This is true of the Middle Ages. As long as we judge medieval culture by an extrinsic standard, that of the modern awareness of anachronism, medieval people will always seem like defective moderns, at best lovable and funny like Don Quixote, more often as naive and credulous in their treatment of images and artifacts that were in fact made recently as though those images and artifacts were themselves invested with the spirit of their prototypes from long ago. The soul of this way of treating artifacts and seeing images survives here and there even into the modern period. An episode recounted in part one, chapter four of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov reveals its persistence. It involves Alyosha, his mother, and a holy image. Although Alyosha's mother died when he was four years old, he always remembered her as if she were standing alive before him. And he associated that love with a memory of her kneeling and tearfully begging the mother of God to protect her child, holding him up to the icon as though the mother of God herself were present. The attitude of the weeping mother toward the image takes no account of who painted it or when. For her, its existence as artifact is not important. What matters is the person depicted. The image thus enables its viewer in some way to transcend time, in a way very like Alyosha's memory itself, uh, which keeps his mother standing alive before him and emerging throughout one's life as specks of light against the darkness. Thank you.